the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Instantly. Message and data. The following program is sponsored with The Truth Incorporated. Today, from Philip DeCourcy on Know the Truth. The road to contentment is a bumpy one. It's not an easy one. God often has to wean us off the world to get us to a place where he is everything we need and more. We've got to learn to live on less. And often that's part of the process of learning contentment. Have you ever noticed how quickly the novelty wears off when we purchase a new item? We can spend months or years saving up only to find our interest decline shortly after we buy it. When it comes to material possessions, it's tempting to think the more we have, the better. But according to God's Word, that's not necessarily the case. Today on Know the Truth, we'll talk about the enduring principle of contentment. Philip DeCourcy is teaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So let's begin. Here's Philip. Ann Landers, the advice columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times for many years, once said, quote, The poor wish to be rich, the rich wish to be happy, the single wishes to be married, and the married wish to be dead. I'm not sure about the married wishing to be dead, but these comments certainly ring true, don't they, that many people are discontent with their lives. They wish for something different. They want something else. They wish they were somewhere other than they are. They wish they were someone other than they are. They wish they had something more than they already possess. These people are always scratching some itch. That's true to life, isn't it? We understand that. We see it in others, and if we're honest, we see it in ourselves. Now, when we were last with Solomon... He was advocating a remedy for the itch. He was arguing for a greater sense of satisfaction that comes through moderating your desires, that comes through settling for the golden mean. Look at verse 6 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Better a handful with quietness. That's what Solomon is advocating. It's better than both hands full, but with that there comes toil and a grasping for the wind. This is a proverb. It's a form of a proverb that uses contrast and comparison. You'll note the word better. Better a handful with quietness than two hands full with toil. This is a proverb that uses contrast and comparison. And the whole intent is to push us to a choice. There's some things that are better than other things. Don't settle for something less. Settle for that which is better. What is that which is better? A handful with quietness. Solomon is encouraging us 
to promote moderation in our lives, to seek contentment in our lives, to get a proper balance between rest and labor, ambition and contentment, to realize that there's a difference between making a living and enjoying a life. Solomon is making that point. He argues that more is often less, okay? And less is often more. That's what he's saying here. Better a handful with quietness than two hands full. Well, that's more. Is that not better? Not necessarily. Not if you have to give up peace of mind, health of your body, unity of your home. No, some things are better. More sometimes is less, and less sometimes is more. A handful with rest is better than two handfuls with added worry and added work. We need to hear that, don't we? In Southern California, we need to hear that throughout the United States. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founders, said this, discontentment makes a rich man poor and contentment makes a poor man rich. Very point that Solomon is making. And so rather than continue on through the rest of chapter 4, I felt drawn for my own good and for your own benefit to really drill down into this thought of contentment. I think this is a great verse. A number of you have shared with me this week how you've been meditating on it. A handful with quietness is better than two hands full with toil. Someone has said that contentment is a cause without a constituency, a virtue without a voice. And it's probably true in our culture where we're constantly being bombarded by this thought, more is better, more is better. Not necessarily. Are we better off as a culture for all the advances and advantages that we enjoy? Not necessarily, because we haven't sought that golden mean. We haven't yet struck that proper balance between rest and labor, ambition and contentment, the material over and against the spiritual. Now, we need to rediscover what an old Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. In fact, I recommend that little book to you. It's a paperback. You'll have to get past the language. It's archaic, but there's so much good stuff in it. Indeed, we do need to rediscover the rare jewel of Christian contentment. I'm going to help us to that end. I'm going to define what contentment is and what it is not. And then we're going to begin to look at mile markers on the road to contentment. There's about seven, eight, or nine of them. I haven't yet decided how many, but I think this is going to be good just to kind of go on a little excursion from within the text, but beyond the text. Because there's a lot of whining going on, not you, okay? (laughs) But there's a lot of whining going on in the culture. These are difficult days. I don't minimize that. Our future's maybe not as bright materially at the moment as a culture. But the people of God should rise like cream to the surface of the culture, showing that in God, it's better to have a handful and rest. Rest through trusting in God's providence. We should, of all people, be most contented. Yet we're bellyaching, we're grumbling, we're moaning, we're whining about how bad things are. Come on. Having food and clothing, the Bible says, be content. For he has said he'll never leave you or forsake you. The Lord's your helper. What's going on? Let's get back to this better a handful and rest than two handfuls. So let's begin. Let's define contentment and then uh, in terms of what it is, what it's not. 
I like this quote from J.I. Packer. Contentment is essentially a matter of accepting from God's hand what he sends because we know that he is good and therefore it is good. It's a good definition. Here's another definition. I like this by Sinclair Ferguson. True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of his providence simply because it is his providence. Philip Graham Ryken, who was once the minister at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, now the president of Wheaton College in Chicago, contentment is wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for us. That's a good one. And maybe the best of all is this one, anonymous. Contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but the realization that you have what you need already. Let me give you a couple of verses that kind of play into the the thought that we're uh, thinking about here. Go over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Ring a bell. What's the issue at Ecclesiastes 4? Jealousy, rivalry, envy. That's what drives competition. That's what drives people to compare. That's what drives people to become discontent. We wish what somebody else has. We don't like what we have. God, you got to give us something else. And so we don't believe God is good and what he gives us is good. We don't settle for his providence. No, we want for us what we want for us, not what God has designed for us. But here's what the Bible says. No, hold on a minute. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. So whatever you have, be content with it. It's from the hand of God. That's what he's designed for you right now. It's part of his will, part of his providence. You need to be content because he has said he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You've never seen a U-Haul on the back of a hearse, have you? No, because we brought nothing in, we take nothing out. Having food, verse 8, and clothing. Anybody without those this morning? Okay, then shut up and stop your belly aching. (laughs) Because you've got your food, you've got your clothing. Therewith, be content. See, that's what contentment is. It's wanting what God has for us, not what we want for ourselves. It's recognizing that you have everything you need right now within God's will. That's what it is. But we need to go beyond that. What's it not? Well, let me say this. Contentment is not a Pollyannish approach to life where we deny the reality of our circumstances, okay? Our circumstances may not be to our liking. We recognize that. It could be better. It has been better. Maybe it will be better. But where you are right now may not be all that you wish, but it is that which God has ordained. And if in the midst of it, you've got food and clothing, therewith be content. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. The Lord's your helper. His providence will work with you. So, It's not a denial that the circumstances may not be to our liking. It's not pretending that things are right when they're wrong. But I'll tell you what it is. It's a faith in God. It's a trust in his providence that frees us and liberates us from being controlled by our momentary emotions. 
by our feelings. It's an inner peace that reaches beyond the circumstances we're in. It was said of Jonathan Edwards that he had a peace beyond the reach of his enemies. That's contentment. Jonathan Edwards was a a theologian of a number of years ago who was kicked out of his church. That's tough to handle, isn't it? But it said he had a peace beyond the reach of his enemies. Because that's what contentment is. That's what confidence in God is. It's not a Pollyannish approach to life. But it is a trusting in God that moves you beyond feelings, emotions, and circumstances. I'll tell you another thing. Contentment isn't passivity. It isn't just blank resignation. It's certainly not que sera, sera, whatever it will be. It's more dynamic than that. It's more alive than that. It's not religious fatalism. Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, said that contentment involves accepting what God has given with a thankful spirit and at the same time refusing to leave things as they are if it is within our ability to influence the situation. So when we talk about contentment, We're talking about accepting where we're at and what we have at any given moment. Right now, we have enough. But that doesn't mean that you don't try and better yourself. That doesn't mean that you can't leverage the situation as long as what you're doing is certainly biblical and within God's will. It's not an act of desperation. It's not an act of discontentment. Remember Joseph in the prison back in Genesis, you know, 37, 38, 39? He's content, it seems. Joseph doesn't fight God's providence. In fact, he knuckles down and he gets on with where he's at. And in fact, he begins to even prosper in the prison. We don't find him whining. We don't find him, you know, giving up. But at the same time, when the butler and the baker come in from Pharaoh's court, what do we find? We find Joseph saying, hey, if one of you guys gets out of here, I want you to put a good word in for me. I want you to, you know, let it be known that I'm here because of injustice, a failure of the judicial system. I'm innocent. So here you have Joseph content, but contentment doesn't mean that you refuse to act if it's within your power to do that. There's nothing wrong with ambition necessarily. I like the story of the uh, Irish visitor who sat listening to an English politician rant and rave during a long speech, and the English politician stood up and said, you know what, I was born an Englishman. I intend to live as an Englishman. I hope to die as an Englishman. The Irishman turned to his friend and said, has the man no ambition? (laughs) Nothing wrong with having ambition, wanting something beyond where you're particularly at, but that's got to all be made subject to the will of God. So, Contentment is not a Pollyannish approach to life. Contentment isn't passivity or blank resignation. And finally here, contentment isn't joining the ranks of the American middle class. See, I can guarantee you we've been conditioned this way by our culture. When you think of contentment, when you think of that place where you kind of get to where you enjoy things in moderation, you're thinking of a four-bedroom house, a two-car garage, a medium income. You're thinking about suburban, 2.5 kids. That's it. You're thinking middle class. Listen to the politicians. What do we hear about the middle class? You see, we want to expand the middle class because when you get into the middle class, you've kind of reached a nice place in life. And no one's denying that. I don't deny that. 
But that's not contentment biblically defined. I like what Richard Swenson in his book, The Margin, says. Contentment isn't that pseudo-virtue of the American dream where we claim solidarity with Paul from the easy chair of the middle class. We profess to having learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances, yet we've never experienced 40 lashes, stoning, shipwreck, hunger, thirst, homelessness, imprisonment. Perhaps none of us should presume maturity until the truer tests have been endured. So that's what Paul went through. And when he says in Philippians 4, we'll get to it in a minute, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Don't be thinking middle class. Think shipwreck. Think flogging, think nakedness, think hunger. And yet contentment in the middle of all of that? Contentment has nothing to do with easy street. And so that's a challenge because you see, we're saying, you know what? I'll be contented when I get there. I'll be more contented. The Lord understands why I'm a little miffed at the moment. Does he? Because whatever circumstance you're in, you can learn contentment. So that's what it is and what it's not. Now, I want to throw your way some mile markers on the road to contentment. As I said, we may end up with seven to nine of them, but we're only going to try and cover two. If you're taking some notes, and you should be, here's the first thought. Anticipate a struggle. Okay, just put that down. The road to contentment is a bumpy one. It's not an easy one. Contentment doesn't come naturally. In fact, discontentment comes naturally. Discontentment is part of our DNA. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. It's part of our sin nature. It's part of our fallenness. It's part of our wickedness. It's part of our rebellion as people against a holy, loving, providing God. We got it from our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, They struggled with it. There they are. Go back to Genesis 2 and 3. You'll see them in the middle of the garden. It's plush. It's pleasurable. It's beautiful. It's bountiful. All those trees to enjoy. But there's one tree in the middle of the garden. What? You can't touch that. And what happens? They become fixated on the one thing they can have. And they become blind to everything they do have. My friend, that is sin in all its ugliness. When you find yourself wanting what you don't have, not appreciating what you do have, hey, you're back in the Garden of Eden. You're rebelling. You're showing likeness to that fallen family. In fact, I'd say this this is worth writing down. Sin at its core is a desire to find satisfaction outside of God's provision. Sin is a desire to have more than God has willed. Do you want more than what God has willed for you right now? That may be sin. Remember we said it's not passivity, so there may be something else that you legitimately can reach for. But often it's illegitimate. It's dissatisfaction. It's discontentment. That comes to us naturally. We don't take the contentment like a duck takes the water. Go over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in respect to need. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Did you notice Paul mentions twice there that he learned contentment? Like he didn't go to bed one night and pray for it and wake up in the morning all content. I'm feeling good. I prayed about it last night. No. I wish it was as easy as that, but I'm sorry. It's not going to be as easy as that. Jewels and precious stones are forged in the darkness under pressure over time. And contentment is a rare jewel. And like a rare jewel, it will be forged in our lives in the darkness under pressure over time. That's why Paul says, God put me through a whole bunch of circumstances, some good, some bad. There's times I was full, other times totally destitute and empty. But all of those were part of the learning process where I learned to throw myself on God, where I learned to do without certain things, where I learned that his grace is sufficient. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Learned. Contentment must be learned over a lifetime and relearned over a lifetime. There's no shortcut to satisfaction. In fact, let me go back to Psalm 131. Please go there and mark it at least. You want to maybe meditate on this. This is quite a thought. Ladies, you can maybe identify with this if you've breastfed your child. David says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Look at Psalm 131, verse 2. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's a powerful picture, okay? It's the picture of a mother breastfeeding the child. And then at some point, she has to wean the child off her milk and on the solid food. Now, in Israel, that often happened at age four and five, well into the process. Can you imagine the struggle, the competition of the two wills? The child that wants to remain on the mother's milk, the attachment that's there, the bond that's there. But the mother knows it's got to get that child on the solid food. And so there's this battle of the will. But eventually the mother wins. It's not an easy process. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And then the child is weaned and content and calm as it feeds on solid food. What a picture of contentment. God often has to wean us off the world and the things that we have grown attached to. That's a struggle to get us to a place where he is everything we need and more. We've got to learn to live on less. And often that's part of the process of learning contentment. If someone with circumstances like Paul could learn contentment, so can we. You're listening to Know the Truth in a message from Philip DeCourcy called Only the Lonely, and we're just getting started. We hope you'll stay with us over the next few weeks as we continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And be sure to log on to our website for resources. That's ktt.org. At Know the Truth, we've made it our mission to present God's truth on the radio, the web, and through the KTT mobile app. These broadcasts are free to access, but they're not free to produce. That's why your voluntary support is so vital to this ministry effort. And we want to invite you to join our team as a monthly partner, taking your giving to the next level. When you give, you're helping to bring Know the Truth to you and your city and to thousands more in cities across America. Link arms with us today by calling 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And if you prefer, you can mail your donation to Know the Truth, 
Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And when you become a monthly Truth Ambassador or give a one-time gift, we'll send you the best-selling book, Not God Enough, by pastor and theologian J.D. Greer. This book explains that many of our problems actually come from a small, limited view of God. Yet the God of the Bible is awesome, majestic, and infinite. So why do we bring God down to our size? That's the topic of Not God Enough, and you can request your copy today when you donate to the Bible teaching ministry of Know the Truth. Again, call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And thanks for your support. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to come back tomorrow for more Bible teaching with Philip DeCourcy. We'll open again to Ecclesiastes 4 as we continue the series titled Only the Lonely, Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. If you're drowning in IRS debt and can't afford to pay, then you need to take advantage of special IRS tax programs that are available and free yourself from IRS collection efforts once and for all. Due to the financial hardship consumers are facing throughout the country, the Internal Revenue Service has made it easier to settle delinquent tax problems. An open phone line has been established by Community Tax for consumers to call and see if they qualify. Take down this number or store it in your cell phone, but call the Community Tax Helpline at 800-500-5588. If you owe back taxes to the IRS and cannot afford to pay them back, or even if you have years of unfiled tax returns, there's no need to fear anymore. But you have to call the Community Tax Helpline today at 800-500-5588 for the help that you need. Don't take on the IRS alone. They can attack your wages, savings, pension, home, and even your Social Security check. Call 800-500-5588 for your free consultation and to see if you qualify. That's 800-500-5588. Pastors, church leader. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.